Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You know, Jews up until the modern era did not write theology. The history of Christianity is replete with many different theological expositions on on Christian belief. The first uh, conference, the Nicene Conference, postulated and promoted and imposed certain beliefs upon the early Christians of the fourth century. Judaism had a very different understanding of how it wanted to teach its major ideas. And so this morning, I want to share with you some of the teachings of Judaism about some of the most important ideas that Judaism has offered to its adherents. Some of these teachings may, in fact, be considered by you to be theology. They have been written about and thought about by Jewish thinkers over many centuries. But their true birthplace lies in concrete daily life. I want to return them to the context of the universal human experience, hoping that this morning you will be able to find within them some understanding of the Jewish way of life as well as the Jewish belief structure. And so I've taken two ideas, which I want to chat with you this morning, that are foundational to the Jewish world. The first one is entitled The Role of Education. If you were to ask me what single precept of Judaism is the one to which most Jews feel the greatest commitment, I would tell you completely without hesitation that it comes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, I shall teach them diligently to your children. The commandment to educate, to pass the legacy of tradition and its knowledge onward from generation to generation. Jews have a particularly strong awareness that our lives serve as bridge between those who came before us and those who will come after us. Each of us, we believe, is a living link between our grandparents and our grandchildren. Even in families where the thick and rich stew of that heritage has become so watered down as to be almost tasteless, Jews still feel an obligation to pass it on while hardly knowing what the it is. Ask any non-Orthodox American rabbi why most Jews join his or her synagogue, and the answer will be clear. People will say, I want my son or daughter to know that they're Jewish, to be proud of their heritage. Or today, they might singularly point out, we want our daughter to share in the knowledge that for so long belonged only to men. But for the same purpose to understand what it means to be a Jew, something she will be able to give to her children, thus passing on the torch. The commitment to learning as a chief vehicle of continuity is not something that is immediately obvious. In most traditional society, it was the land itself. So too in Judaism, especially agricultural land that constituted the patrimony to be which handed down one needs only to read the book of Genesis to understand the importance of God's promise of a land and God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would be the inheritors of the land. 
There are, of course, parts of the world where ancient enmities and memories of tribal conflict are the stuff of legacy. Jews certainly have those memories as well. But beginning more than two millennia ago, the Jewish people identified its culture as one of Torah, literally meaning one of teaching. And teaching became the substitute for land that they were forbidden to own. And knowledge became the essential tool for participation in that culture. Jewish culture passed on from generation to the next generation. Jewish heroes over the course of those generations included very few warriors or statesmen as they were landless and no longer able to actualize the heroic roles that had been offered to them when they were masters of their own destiny. Only a handful of artists and not many people of special physical prowess or athletic ability, but they were blessed with a great many scholars and sages. To be a Ben Torah, a person of learning, was the aspiration that the Jewish society valued the most. And if you ask me which came first, was it the prohibition against being an artist, the prohibition against physical activity, the prohibition against holding your own land, or the obligation to study, which was more easily transferred to a next generation, I would argue the two go hand in hand. For much of that long period, this knowledge was largely internal. Sacred texts, commentaries, legal compilations, codes, works of philosophy, and mystic lore written by Jews and intended for consumption within the Jewish community alone. The apex of this culture of learning was the Talmud, the vast compilation of law and lore completed by the rabbis of Babylonia in about the 6th century, the complex dialectics of Talmudic argumentation, especially in the legal sections, became the paradigm for the typical style of Jewish thinking that spread over the ages and through the entire world. Much of what is called Jewish humor, by the way, is an imitation and parody of that style of discourse. A special institution was created for intellectual conversation in the dialectical mode, the chavruta, or study partnership in which two people ask each other questions, demolish each other's arguments, and help clarify and reframe their thinking, is a particularly Jewish form of friendship. It is carried on in the Beit Midrash or the House of Study, a communal learning hall that in traditional community stands alongside the synagogue as a key communal institution. This value of intellectual achievement worked well as a tool for Jewish survival through the long period of exile and diaspora. The spread of knowledge went from great feats of oral memorization to the copying of manuscripts and then to the wonder of printed pics. These meant that one could engage in a conversation long before the age of cyberspace. Seated around a virtual bait midrash table with two disputed sages from 2nd century Galilee, an 11th century French commentator, a 16th century Turkish codifier, a 19th century Polish questioner, and one's own study partner. The wisdom of tradition was always seen as cumulative, each generation of students and scholars standing on the soldiers, soldiers of all those who had come before. As Jews entered the modern world, beginning in the late 18th century, 
their faith and accrued skills in textual reasoning came to be applied to a new and broader realms of knowledge. The massive attraction of Jews to higher education, both in Europe and in contemporary North America, is the result of a number of factors. Some of it is about the desire to get ahead in social and economic terms. When Jews were still seen as low-class outsiders in Western societies, Jews felt a need to try harder than anyone else in order to claim their place in the new society. A pattern of behavior, of course, replicated by many immigrant groups. The breakdown of the intellectual ghetto walls was also seen as a great liberation for many Jews who felt confined and constricted by the ancient rubrics of Jewish learning, most of which had little to do with the struggle to live in the contemporary world. The turn to modernity, we should add, also eventually gave educational opportunity to Jewish women. The 50% of the population that had been excluded from the world of traditional Jewish learning The new Jewish society that became the modern state of Israel was created by generations of so-called pioneers who believed that European Jews had become too intellectualized. They sought a world where Jews would be farmers, laborers, rather than professors. This vision lasted for two or perhaps three generations in the new state of Israel, but soon became clear that Israel, the state of Israel's strength, lay in the life of the mind. I would add that although Israel's current educational system leaves much to be desired, the fact is that most of the farm and manual labor in today's Israel is done by Arab or international migrant workers, and the nation itself excels in high-tech, medical, and other learning-based innovations, a transition from traditional Jewish study, which was the foundation of traditional Jewish life, to the foundation of the modern state of Israel. The academic community of North America over the course of the past half century or more has been greatly enriched, even partly shaped by the contribution of Jews far beyond the presence in the general population. Once the discriminatory quotas and gentlemen agreements excluding us broke down, beginning in the early post-World War II areas, Both faculties and students, especially in the highest-ranking institutions, have embraced large Jewish populations. Every Canadian has a story. Every Canadian Jew, that is, has a story about Jews being excluded from the halls of learning at McGill University or the University of Toronto, which were perceived in the early 1930s and 1940s as the epitome, the highest point in academic learning in our country. For much of this period, Jews in the academy were one of the most secularized segments of the Jewish community. The first group to arrive at the university consisted of children of immigrants, forged in Depression-era poverty and naturally attracted to the politics of the left, including a passion for social justice. Their vision of an ideal society was a thinly secularized version of the ancient Jewish prophetic dream, even if they did not recognize it as such. That is why so many of the great revolutionaries of the modern era have been Jewish. They internalized a secularized version of the ancient Jewish prophetic dream, even if 
The Lenins and Trotskys did not know that's where it came from. And after them came Jews of our own generation, partly shaped by the great social changes of the 1960s. These and their successors, while more fully Americanized, North Americanized, disproportionately maintain a belief in the value of education, especially a sense that it bears responsibility for social transformation, including the eradication of inequality and poverty. In that sense, it is important to see that some deep part of our ancient Jewish legacy of passing on education has moved into the North American mainstream. But with this transition, it's important to ask what has happened to our own internal educational efforts. The attempt to pass on Jewish traditions to current generations of Jews. Jewish education in North America is hardly a tale of unmitigated success unlike the integration of Jews into the halls of higher learning. The afternoon Hebrew school, which was the bane of most Jewish kids, lives for much of the 20th century. Valiant efforts by teachers, both professional and volunteer, could not overcome the fatigue and boredom of sitting still for another two hours after a long school day. The greater attractiveness of the general culture, including sports, and perhaps most important, the readily perceived gap of practices taught in the schools, but ignored in the home. These same parents, who strove so hard to get their kids to attend Hebrew school, at least until the age of 13, bar and bat mitzvah, and the great ritual reward moment did rather little to witness Jewish importance in the lives of their children on a daily basis. The ongoing achievements in secular learning alongside this widespread failure of Jewish supplementary education has led to an unacceptable disparity in American Jewish life between the levels of general intellectual sophistication and the mastery of even the most basic forms of Jewish knowledge. Jews who possess advanced degrees in the sciences or humanities or who are highly successful in law, medicine, or other education-based professions are often virtually illiterate when it comes to Judaism or Hebrew. This is often manifest by the embarrassment such people feel when receiving an honor in the synagogue, when trying to recite the blessings over the Hanukkah candles, or when trying to conduct even the most basic sort of Passover Seder. It is one of the reasons why many uh, synagogues and Jewish communal institutions now offer adult Jewish literacy classes to help overcome this chasm. Such classes are often of special importance to women who were given no Jewish education in the era before the bat mitzvah was widely embraced as a significant Jewish rite somewhere around the early 1980s. In the course of passing tradition from one generation to the next, it is important to note that the tradition carried forward has to be enriched and reshaped, not merely ossified and preserved by its custodians in each generation. The Judaism that our grandparents imbibed in small Eastern European towns would hardly be the proper vehicle for their descendants and great descendants in the fast-paced and open-ended and culturally diverse North America 
of today and tomorrow. If we look at the past decades, these generational enrichments may be clearly seen. Enthusiasm brought on by the establishment of the new Jewish state, including modern Hebrew song and dance, were added to the curriculum of the 1950s and 1960s Jewish life. They were followed in subsequent decades by the growth of Holocaust memory and its studies and the efforts to liberate Soviet Jews. Then toward the end of the last century and the beginning of the new century came the full inclusion of women in Jewish life and emerging new perspectives brought about by it. Most recently, in North American Jewish life, we note the re-embracing of mysticism, meditation, and spiritual search as legitimate parts of modern Judaism. Each of these has successfully served to enliven Jewish education for both youth and adults. As a rabbi, I have devoted much of my life to educating a leadership for American Jewry in the mid-21st century. I have devoted a great part of my life to trying to educate those who will provide contemporary and compelling answers to the question, why would she care about the future? Why would, she, why would we make the effort to pass this generation forward from each generation to the next? Why continue this? The world has changed. The answers vary depending on both the person asking and the time in which it is asked. But seeking the answers throughout our lives is its own greatest reward and, of course, serves as the ongoing transmission of the Jewish value of learning. Is that a theological concept? Is learning and passing it on to the next generation based on belief? Or is it or is it simply a powerful idea that Jews have developed based on their reading of Scripture? It is both. For the believing Jew to pass on our history, to pass on our language, to pass on our faith, to pass on our stories in a way that ensures that they become the lifeblood of a new generation is, of course, a faithful replication of that which has occurred before. But likewise, to do all of that for some people will not necessarily be faith. It will be cultural identity. Let me suggest that there is another idea that serves as an underpinning of Judaism. This one, perhaps, is better known to you. It is entitled A Community of, Doing, of Doers. It has often been said, and even I have mentioned it, that in popular parlance, people speak about Christianity as a religion of faith and Judaism as a religion of law, or sometimes Christianity as a religion of love 
and Judaism as a religion of law. The truth is that Judaism is not so much a community of law as a community of doers, not a community of talking the talk, but walking the walk. In fact, the word for Jewish ritual law is halakha, whose root means walking. Judaism sees itself as a path of praxis, and the Jews or the people of Israel as a human community that lives in accords with God's Torah, as passed on, refined, and interpreted by an ongoing body of teachers and students. This body begins what later memory called the men of the great assembly, possibly reaching back to the time of Ezra, the beginning of the second temple, about 500 before the common era. Later, it was called the Sanhedrin, the great court of 71 rabbis that existed into the second century of the common era. And after that, it was the heads of the great academies, Sura and Pumbedita, and then just well-known rabbis scattered around the Jewish world who determined exactly how the life of Torah was to be practiced in ever-changing particular circumstances. Halakha, or the normative praxis of Judaism, is often rendered in English as Jewish law. But that is, I suggest, an unfortunate translation. The word halakha, as I've already suggested, literally means walking. And it refers to a path or a way of walking in the world. It comes to us from the Torah. When Moses, in the course of his final speeches, admonishes Israel in Deuteronomy 10.12 to walk in God's ways. To walk in God's ways. In the original context, this probably means something very similar to do what is good and upright, which is expressed in Deuteronomy 12.28, a moralistic admonition to good behavior. Much of this had to do with the imitation of God, just as God is gracious and merciful, so you should be gracious and merciful, or even more specifically referring to various biblical stories, just as God feeds the hungry and clothes the naked, visits the sick and buries the dead, so shall you, to walk in God's way, do each of these as well. But sometimes people need more definition. Sometimes simply a biblical verse is not enough to serve as a basis for a lifelong commitment to a journey. Precisely how is one to walk in God's ways? Both in the ethical realm, those commandments that obligate us toward our fellow humans, and in the ritual realm, those acts that tie us to God. The Torah makes specific demands. Later traditions evolved that either expanded upon the biblical text or seemed to diverge from it. Questions were raised, discussed by scholars in great detail, and their answers were recorded first by oral memory and later in writing. Then they were codified so that students and later generations could find and follow them with greater ease. I know that many of you will say that this sounds an awful lot like a legal process. Indeed, it may have been one at one time. Why then do I think that translating halakha as law is inappropriate? The word law has a cold and impersonal feel to it. 
You must do something because the law requires it. If not, your deviation from the norm requires there to be punishment. Conforming to the law in our society requires no sense of commitment, no sense of personal engagement, and simply what you do to avoid paying a fine or going to jail. Most people, if they can avoid getting caught, actually care a little bit about conforming to the law. Halakha, especially in our modern world, though, is very different. We choose to follow these precepts out of our personal commitment. It is our way of expressing such deep feelings as our love of God, our attachment to the legacy of the Jewish people, our sense of the need to apply our spiritual beliefs to the conduct of even the most mundane human affairs. Despite the sometimes harsh biblical language, most of us know that halacha has no punishing arm other than our own conscience. The decision to live within it, to whatever extent we do, is one that has to be made and renewed, sometimes questioned and revised, even on a daily basis. Our choice is to stay on the path, to walk the walk, or to wander off of it, involves much more than the word law usually connotes. The ancient rabbis debated the question of whether halachic behavior required intentionality. Do the commandments require intent in order to be fulfilled? And although the circumstances of each case vary, generally the rabbis came down on the side of not requiring intent. Who can know, after all, what goes on inside a person's heart? But the truth is, intentionality, if not required, in the ritual sphere, especially regarding prayer, Walking in the path is truly an outer expression of what is in the heart. It stems from a sense of commandment that implies a relationship between the one who commands and the one who responds. In fact, the Hasidic authors only playfully suggested that the term mitzvah or commandment derives not from the root meaning to command, but rather from an Aramaic word that means to be, to work together. That is, a deed, a commandment, is something in which God and the Jew are joined, an act in which we meet God. It is an expression of covenant, a declaration of love and loyalty and commitment, an opportunity to encounter God's presence. As I said before, with education, is that theology? Or is that simply an opportunity to express how Jews should live their lives. The interaction between these two is what makes these two Jewish ideas so tantamount to the essence of Judaism in the modern world. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear it again on the website of CHRIFM, or you can download it from iTunes, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good morning and shalom. shalom.